The Way Out Podcast, episode 319. What is your name? My name is Casey Ariaga. Casey, what was your substance of choice or DOC? I would say, well, if it's strictly speaking substances, I'd say alcohol was definitely the, uh, the main event, although I was kind of into whatever I've never tried before, whether it was within the alcoholic spectrum or not. But I will say I started addiction earlier than that with things like sex and love addiction, got compulsive with food, codependency, all kinds of things. Boy, could I relate to every bit of that, Casey, for sure. My dad always used to say that I had the quickest hand to the cookie jar. Although I gotta say alcohol was definitely my first love and my ultimate demise. Right on, yeah, I'll say, um, you know, it's funny right now if my clients say like, so what was what, what was your addiction? I'd say more. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. Well said. Casey, if you keep one, what is your clean and or sober date? Uh, at this point, I would say January 1st of uh, 2006. Wow, that is substantial recovery. Congratulations, brother. Well, thank you. And um, I feel very fortunate. Uh, I would love to take all the credit for that, but that would not be the case. So I'm going to put some credit out there. Higher power often has experienced through the many, many people around me in recovery. Lots of people that had faith in me, that believed in me more than I believed in myself for a mm. long time. Although I have learned to catch up with that and learned to actually love myself and mm. see myself as a good human being. But when, when I first came out of recovery, uh, all those things were up in the air and up, up, up for doubt. I thought maybe I was like a hopeless monster, but uh, happily that was not at all the case. I've learned through my own experience in recovery and through the many, many folks that we've had on this podcast that recovery doesn't happen in isolation and in a vacuum. It's always the result of the help and the giving of others, especially at the beginning, but throughout our recovery. And, and I'll tell you the truth, I've known people who got sober on their own. Um, my adoptive father pulled it off last years of his life. He was an alcoholic all his life. Um, he admitted it to very few people, send, sell them in private. But he did get sober the last two years on his own. And I remember I, when I found that out, because I didn't find that out until after he passed away for about 10 years of a different addiction to nicotine. And I asked my mom, like, wow, he got sober on his own. Like, how was that? And she said, he was miserable. Yeah. So the people I know that have even said like, oh, I'm going to do it on my own and, and get some success are nowhere near as happy and contented and all that kind of stuff as the people I know that do it together. And so I'm a big fan of that. And I will point out, partly for humility, but also accuracy that, um, you know, my sober date is in 2006, but my entry into the program date would be in 1998. So it took me about seven years of experimentation and a lot of that trying to do it like semi on my own like i go to meetings but like i'm not getting a sponsor i'm not <laughs> right. doing a lot of things that are suggested and i certainly didn't want any of that spirituality people were talking mm -hmm. about so you know i tried in a lot of ways even within a recovery program and recovery fellowship i was still kind of trying to do it on my own until i finally got to a point where i just waved white flag and it's not <laughs> happening with me on under my own power what else is on the menu and luckily there were a lot of really good suggestions that others had absolutely been my experience and I really differentiate recovery versus 
abstinence. I certainly know folks that have been abstinent on their own, but my experience with that is very much yours. What I would call untreated alcoholism is what they're suffering from. And I've suffered from in my own experience when I have been abstinent without a solution. I am without substances, but nothing else has changed and I'm miserable because I'm not treating the core issues. Right? Yeah. And in, was- in recovery, I'm I'm using all my I'm using tools. I'm actively working a program of recovery, right? Sure. And I'm actually well I'm recovering. I'm recovering who I am. I'm mm. recovering my values. I'm recovering my sense of happiness in the world. And when I say recovering, uh, you know, sometimes it didn't feel it felt more like discovery. Yes. Because I couldn't remember a time in my life when I felt a sense of peace in my heart. Mm. It was probably there, oh, yeah. uh, but it might have been like in the womb. Um, <laughs> I don't remember any, any time in living memory where it was, but I did come to find out that that sense of peace is available to me. And I haven't met mm. anyone yet where it's not available to them too. And that's why I think it's important that what you're doing and the same kinds of things that I try and do to get the word out there for people that has felt as hopeless as I felt, mm. then there's a lot of hope for you. Absolutely. Casey, how do you serve the recovery community? Um, in any way I'm called to do, I'll say is the most general blanket uh, answer. In, in terms of specifics, probably the most important stuff that I think that I do is showing up at recovery meetings, um, sharing my story as openly and honestly as I can. Uh, trying not to oversell it. Like, I don't want to make it sound like, hey, as soon as you get recovery, everything's rainbows and sunshine, and it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but just trying to be as truthful as I can. I do uh, sponsor or mentor others um, when asked, or, you know, I take service opportunities when they're given. Um, later in, in my recovery, I kind of fell into working in the recovery field. So I started out just sort of like, hey, you're the guy who's going to wake people up and give them medications uh, up in the northern northern uh, wildlands of New Mexico. And then uh, found myself later, someone said, hey, you should go back to school. So I did. I went back and went from a guy who, you know, barely passed elementary school into a guy now who's got a master's degree, um, clinical social worker, chemical dependency counselor. So I try and serve people in that way. And more recently, one of the things I've done is I've started writing books based on some of that experience, you know, um, and trying to get the word out there to people that I'm not gonna be personally, but uh, through doing a podcast that I do, um, through writing the books, through speaking places, and just trying to spread the message of hope as, as much as I can. One of the things that you mentioned, which I think is so important, is to not just show up at recovery meetings as a person in long-term recovery and talk about the prizes and all the things that we may have gotten as a result of recovery, because ultimately that's not what it's about. I didn't get into recovery for the prizes they come out of a process that i'm working the prizes are not why uh, we're in this thing and it's as you said disingenuous to show up as a person in long-term recovery and pretend that life is sunshine and rainbows all the time because it's not and it gets lifey and 
we experience adversity and we experience some ups and downs in our recovery and being honest about that and how we're working through that and using our tools of recovery to work through that, I think is so much more genuine and instructive for people that are new in recovery, but anybody that's at a recovery meeting. Absolutely. And and that's something that was really starkly illustrated to, to me one time when I was talking with somebody who had had 24 years of continuous sobriety and then relapsed. Mm. And we were talking about like kind of what happened. Mm. And we were able to trace it all the way back to five years prior when they had gone to a meeting sharing openly from their heart, here's what's really going on for me, here's my struggles. And and apparently somebody came up to them and said, said like, hey, you can't be saying that from the newcomer. You have to make it look good. You got whatever at that point, 18 years sober. You need to you need to be selling the message. You can't be coming here talking about your your struggle, save that for for your sponsor or whatever. And unfortunately, this person took it to heart, so they stopped sharing honestly at meetings, which means they no longer were really carrying the same kind of message. They started kind of shrinking into themselves, and of course, you're not getting as much out of the meeting. You stop showing up, you stop talking to people, and after a while, they didn't have any support and they relapsed. Yeah. And one of the big takeaways for me is that it's important for me and it's important for the newer person in the room to hear what's really happening. So if I'm going in and saying, man, I am struggling right now. And yeah, I want to be able to say, here's what I'm doing about it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just complain, but I do right. want to be able to say, here are the real life struggle, man. This is what's going on in my marriage. This is what's going on with my kid, you know? And I've found that I've been able to walk in rooms of recovery and say, man, I'm so ashamed about this thing that happened and I feel like I blew it. And invariably, whether it's during the meeting or in the sort of meeting after the meeting when people are just talking and someone comes up and says, hey man, Casey, I've been through something like that myself and it's mm -hmm. gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. And then at other times, I have the opportunity to walk up to somebody else and say, hey, I've been through that same thing, it's gonna be okay. But none of us can do that if we're not showing up and, and sharing honestly. If we're just pretending like, oh, I'm in recovery now and everything's amazing, um, then I'm in trouble. And you're right, I didn't show up for the prizes. I didn't show up expecting to gain anything from recovery. I just showed up trying not to lose things. It didn't occur to me that there might be anything good that would come out of it. I was just trying to no longer have bad things happen. But of course, it's turned out to be so much more. No doubt. To your point, Casey, I get as much or more out of the person that shares honestly that they're struggling with something and still dealing with it sober. And they give me permission to share my struggles, which is hard for me in a group face to face to say, yeah, this is hard for me. This is going on and it's hard and I don't know what to do or I'm having a hard time with it because I was raised to and expected to all my life to put on that veneer of everything's okay and I don't care if it's all falling apart on the outside, everything's cool. And I have to actively practice sharing some of those things. And when other people do it, it continues to give me permission and that's important for me. Absolutely, and it's it's funny when you say that, like that pattern of like, don't let it show, don't let the neighbors know what's going yeah. on, you know, pretend like it's all okay. Um, while I know it's not exclusive to families around addiction, including addiction to alcohol, which we call alcoholism, but I found in my family that I grew up in, my adoptive family, 
that was part of the pattern of you know, my dad's alcoholism was, you know, at one point my mom, I remember she took me aside and said, you can't let the neighbors know what's going on. You can't talk about this outside of the house. And so in my work, and um, this is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about working with families of people around addiction who sometimes know even less about recovery and less what kind of support is available, let alone that they should have recovery. One of the reasons I love working with them is to recognize like, we didn't make any of these patterns up. Some of these things were born generation after generation after generation in the past, sometimes with like, because addiction can skip some generations, we may not even recognize and think, oh, I'm the first person ever in my entire family tree, when in fact, you know, great grandma and great grandpa may have been struggling with Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. And in those early conditions may have had that idea of like, okay, we can't talk about this, we can't reveal it. And those patterns, even if the addiction skips generations, those patterns get passed down hand to hand. So when I get into recovery, it's no longer just about me. It's also about saying, now what am I going to be passing down to the next generation, the generation after that? And, and who knows, maybe three generations down the line, things will be getting better and they won't know it was me and that's okay because it's not about ego, but just recognizing I can make a positive difference in my family and my family tree by getting into recovery and changing those patterns to say, we are gonna talk about things. And when yeah. we struggle, what we do around here is we reach out for help. That's a good but deal. That's a huge deal. That's a huge deal breaking those generational cycles that negatively impact our emotional, mental, and spiritual wellness. Recognizing how much of the whole family gets impacted and how much of this ripples out in all directions. The good news around that being that there's recovery available in all directions and recovery available to all the family members. and. Uh, you know, if I may, this is this is part of what inspired me to write my first book, Realistic Hope, because I worked as a counselor. I started working with families and doing family workshops and all this kind of stuff. And I would see people come in the room and they had no idea. Like they didn't realize how they'd been impacted. They all, almost universally all would show up and say, we just want to get our loved ones sober. And I'd say like, well, that doesn't really exist. <laughs> you, you can't just reach in and get somebody sober. Well, well, just tell us what to do. What do we need to do so that my loved one stays sober? I'm like, look, if you figure that out, let me know. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't really exist. They're going to have to decide whether or not they're going to get yeah. sober. But you can work on your recovery. Yeah. There are things that you can do. And so, again, that's what that was the first thing that inspired me to sit down and write. And the, the beautiful, I don't know if it's irony or beauty, however you want to take it, is that my adopted father, the guy with the alcohol problem, is the one who also inspired me to be a writer. And he, he raised me to be a writer. And now he's been dead 22 years, so you can do the math. I was just barely getting sober when, uh, when he passed away. And he and I were not on very good speaking terms. Um, we barely saw each other. I had no idea he had gotten sober. So there we were, two men in a room, having both gotten sober. Neither one of us knew it about the other one and we didn't have a way to communicate that. He would have no idea that I was gonna go on and, and become an author. And I've said to my wife, and you know, it's sort of humorous, but it's also kind of true. I think he would be really proud to know that I was writing. He'd be horrified to know what I was writing about. Because <laughs> in the books, man, I'm just gonna tell the truth. So in, the, in, you know, yeah. in my books, I do get out there and say like, here's what happened to the family. This is what it looked like. I try and focus a lot on here's my part, here's what I did. I'm not trying to drag everyone else's you know, stories out, but 
it's hard to tell my story without talking about what happened in the family. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like some of the family legacy that caused so much damage now offers an opportunity to cause a lot of healing. And, and I don't know, that just, that, that does a lot for my heart. I want to talk to you as we get into the main interview about the family side and the side of the recovering addict, because we spent a lot of time on this show talking about the recovering addict side and a huge piece. It's super important for us to continue to highlight the journeys to and through recovery to this point from a recovering addicts and alcoholics perspective. But the family side is an extremely important component of recovery, often to understand for the recovering addict, but also for the family and the loved ones of recovering addicts and alcoholics or active addicts and alcoholics. Because as you said, the first thing you learn in the 12-step family side of the program is the three C's. Didn't cause it, can't cure it, can't control it, right? And so but there are things that we can do if we are on the family side to get well, regardless of what the addict or alcoholic does or does not do. Absolutely. Absolutely true. And that's that's a central part of my message for people is that your recovery no longer has to be hooked on to what somebody else does. And I would say that to the person who is newly recovering or sober curious or thinking about recovery, your recovery doesn't have to depend on what someone else does. And the same thing to the family member, same thing, your recovery doesn't have to depend on whether or not your loved one gets sober or what that looks like, or whether or not they're doing it the way you think they should. You can get recovery no matter what. And I'd say that's a central piece of the message. Anybody can get recovery without waiting for someone else to behave right. What you just said sets up our last question very, very well. What does recovery mean to you? I'm going to say that recovery means regaining who we really are. And I know when I first came into recovery, that would be a scary thought. Because as I mentioned earlier, I was afraid that who I really was wasn't a very good person. Right. So to clarify that, I believe deep in my heart that everybody fundamentally get all the way down to the bottom, take away the fear. People are really good people. People would rather be loving than hateful. People would rather be kind than cruel. But sometimes we don't feel safe to show up as our true selves. So recovery is the sometimes long, slow, and occasionally painful process of letting go of all of those fear reactions and defenses and some would say character defects, however you want to frame those things, those things that probably saved me at some point, but now hurt me, to let those things go. And instead to be able to embrace who I really, I don't know if I would say meant to be, but certainly can be moving forward as my most loving and hopeful and kind and curious self. And uh, to me, that's what recovery is, is slowly but surely, getting that true nature back, whether I ever recall having it before. Like I said, sometimes it feels like discovery, but that's really what it is, is recovering who we really are. It's an absolutely beautiful way to describe it, Casey. And you used words like discovery, recovery. I think also uncovering 
Mm-hmm. I think about the analogy of the sculptor who starts with a granite block and gets rid of all the unnecessary stuff that's in the way to reveal what's truly inside. And recovery's definitely been a lot like that for me. As you said, removing the fear, the anger, those character defects, those counterproductive thought and behavior patterns. As I continue to remove those and continue to get out of my own way, I'm getting down to my authentic self in reconnecting. When I reconnect to myself without all of that stuff in the way, then and only then in my experience can I truly connect to you. And can I truly connect to my higher power? And I often connect to my higher power through you. But not if all of that other stuff is in the way. First, I got to remove the chemicals and the substances and the behaviors. And then I have to work on removing all of that other stuff that's in the way. And only then can I really connect. And it's a process. And some days I'm more connected than others, to be sure. But I know what it feels like to be disconnected now in recovery. And I know how to get reconnected in recovery. And in the end, that's what I'm after. That is really beautiful. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the higher power. And I know, as I mentioned myself earlier, and well, I'm sure it'll come up again, I was not excited about that stuff when I first came in. But I'll <laughs> say that, you know, when we talk about that analogy with the sculptor and the, the block of marble, and for some reason it sticks in my brain. I, don't, I hope this is accurate. I believe that was actually a quote from Michelangelo. And someone said, like, how do you create these sculptures out of marble? Which, uh, in recovery, I've had an opportunity to go touring with my band in Europe, and we got to go through Florence and see the original sculpture of David. And you know, you see various things, and they had some other Michelangelo works. But one thing that struck me is they had kind of off to one side a marble sculpture by someone who I'm sure was way more talented than me, but not as talented as Michelangelo. And I got to see, like, wow, it is so hard to work in this medium. But I thought about, you know, Michelangelo saying, yeah, I just chip away everything that isn't the sculpture, which, you know, sounds like kind of a funny thing to say, but it's also kind of true. But what occurs to me in recovery, whether I'm turning as my higher power to the group, to the steps, to the spirit of all the people recovering around the world, or to, to a conception of a higher power, more like a deity or a force outside myself, that I can actually take the hammer and chisel and hand them over to my higher power and say, mm. why don't you remove what you know needs to be removed? Because sometimes mm. I don't even know. Yeah. You know, for those that are working the steps, the, the seventh step prayer suggests that uh, I may not even know which ones of my character defects need to be removed because the prayer says, you know, remove every single character defect that stands in the way of my usefulness to you, my fellows, which tells me the subtext there is, I may not know what needs to go. You have a better idea than me. Why don't you take me there? And again, that would have terrified me when I came in, but now I uh, I really embrace that idea of like, why don't you take the hammer and chisel for a while and, <laughs> and do a little sculpting? Absolutely. That's a great, great point. Often 
as I said, my higher power speaks through other people, and often other people do notify me of the things that I might need to work on. And so if I'm listening and willing to truly hear that, I can often hear from other people the things that I may need to work on next that are getting in the way of my ability to connect love and be of service to my brothers and sisters in and out of recovery. Yeah, and and I find that sometimes someone will walk up and say, uh, man, Casey, there's something <laughs> you might want to look at. <laughs> yeah. sometimes, sometimes they show up as my teachers by bringing a reaction out of me. Yes. Like, oh, this person seems annoying, but really they're here as a teacher. This is the voice of my higher <laughs> power and say, hey, Casey, you know how you just got like really upset? That's not about them. <laughs> That's about you, buddy. <laughs> you got some work to do there. And then occasionally someone will show up as an example of some way I don't want to be. And I yeah. recognize all too well in the mirror. And I'll be like, <laughs> oh, thank you, teacher. Yeah, you are yes. showing me right now something yes. that I need to see. So <laughs> there, my higher power shows up as all kinds of people. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. I love that. And I can feel that on an intimate level. Well, somebody once told me, if you hear somebody say that you have a tail, uh, I wouldn't worry about it. If the second person says you have a tail, eh, you might have a tail. If three people tell you you have a tail, you probably have a tail, right? And so I took that as a, hey, my higher power speaks for other people. And if, am I hearing the same message over and over from folks? I probably need to take a look at something. Absolutely. Well, I, I always remember, I am the common denominator in all my relationships. So. <laughs> Welcome, Way Out faithful and first timers, to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out Podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training 
enhance, and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, I'm absolutely ecstatic that I am able to bring you a phenomenal interview with person in long-term recovery, clinical social worker, chemical dependency counselor, recovery podcaster, and author of two recovery books, including his latest, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, a primer, Casey Ariaga. Casey shares his journey to and through recovery to this point with a truly remarkable ability to articulate the benefits of being a part of recovery fellowships, recovery programs, and in engaging in a personal spiritual journey of your own variety. Whether you identify as an addict, alcoholic, or you are on the family side and identify as a person who is related to or has a loved one that struggles with addiction. Without question, one of the greatest gifts I've received in recovery thus far is the countless lessons I've learned from so many amazing folks that I've had the great pleasure to come to know in the rooms of recovery, both physical and virtual. Perhaps even more valuable to my own recovery has been the profound teachings each and every guest has bestowed upon yours truly and the Way Out podcast audience at large. And Casey is a shining example of a guest who was as much of a teacher to me in our interview as he was a guest sharing his powerful recovery story. To illustrate this for you all and to illuminate the tremendous phenomenon that occurs when two or more people who are in recovery connect and share their respective experience, strength, and hope, whether that be at a recovery meeting or in this case in the course of a podcast interview, I offer you the intro to this very episode as a case in point. You may recall that I related how important it is for me to identify and eliminate counterproductive thought and behavior patterns that get in the way of my ability to authentically connect to myself, my higher power, and perhaps most importantly, others. Casey, to his credit, responded by relating that often in his experience, it's not him that's best suited to identify and remove those counterproductive thought and behavior patterns, or character defects if you will, rather it's his higher power that ultimately does the best job of this all-important facet of his recovery. In real time during the interview, I realized that over the last who knows how long, a shift had occurred in my thinking on these counterproductive thought and behavior patterns within my own recovery. The shift went from very much relying on and invoking my higher power to help me identify and remove these counterproductive thought and behavior patterns to me doing it all on my own without any help, which is how I tried to do it without sustainable success prior to entering a recovery seven plus years ago. This shift happened so slowly and incrementally that I didn't even realize it was happening until that moment when Casey related his experience around character defects, and it hit me like a lightning bolt. I have a quick forgetter, and I still need reminders of what works for folks in their recovery, and that, my friends, is what this whole 
podcast, and indeed this very episode, is all about. So listen up. Casey Ariaga, thank you so much, brother, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. You're a person in long-term recovery. You're an author of two books about recovery, which is absolutely amazing. And indeed, you are a podcaster all about recovery, which I love. We're going to get into all of that, including your journey to and through recovery to this point. But before we do, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me and the opportunity and want to greet everybody in the audience and say that if you are in recovery or you're curious about recovery, you're just thinking about recovery, you're in the right place Um, Mm. because there's no better place than listening to and talking to and talking about and working with other people who are experiencing recovery and trying for it. And one of the things I've had the opportunity to do in some of those activities you've talked about as being a counselor, being an author, being a podcaster is I've gotten to do a lot of science research because I'm a real geeky science kind of guy and getting to see like what do the facts actually tell us. And one big thing that stood out to me uh, when I saw it is that as simple as this, people that get involved in recovery fellowships, which is to say talking with other people about recovery who are trying to stay sober themselves are twice as likely to stay sober as anybody else. Mm. So if you are thinking about Maybe I want to check that's this recovery thing, and you're listening to and talking to other people in recovery, you are already right off the bat doubling your chances of staying sober. So that's pretty cool stuff. I'm glad you're here. So how I came to be here, um, you know, well, it all started with the Big Bang. Okay, so that's maybe going back a little <laughs> too far. But I will say from my earliest moments, there are traces of the addictive thinking pattern. It showed up in my life. Uh, by the time I was in kindergarten and first grade in a more obvious way around things like sex and love addiction that fully blossomed by the hit time I hit 10 years old, um, started running away with my life. And I thought like, this is, this is me, this is who I'm doomed or just fated to be. And so I set out to escape my life as much as possible with whichever, what, which, whichever things, substances, whatever. Um, I actually did not start into alcohol use as early as some, partly because I grew up around a dad who had problems with alcohol. And I was like, well, that's never going to be me. Yeah. In fact, I'll, I'll say as a brief aside, I started going to alcohol recovery meetings. Oh, man, I was probably in them for at least a year before I would say the word alcoholic. Oh, I would wow. show up and say, hey, I'm, um, I'm Casey. I'm an addict. And you know, hi, Casey. Everyone like, was like, okay, cool. That's you. Do you do you? And then I remember one day I said alcoholic and I felt a cold sweat go through my whole body because it was so scary to say that out loud. But I could tell I'd been involved in addiction basically all my life in some way, shape or form. And uh, fast forward till I was 30 now and uh, had a two year old daughter, had a good job, house, picket fence, dog, two cars in the garage, all the things you hear about, happily married for 10 years at that point except that I had just been slowly but surely as I do ramping up with things and Mm -hmm. getting more and more extreme and taking more chances. And, you know, I, I always thought I was better, stronger and faster than everybody else. So the consequences and the rules didn't apply to me. I was also always special Casey, but special Casey was not doing so well uh, on the inside, certainly. And it was becoming more and more obvious on the outside. I was starting to lose relationships. People were starting to back away. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, legal consequences were on the horizon, you know, and I was taking risks were really the only difference between me and people in jail or prison was that I didn't get caught yet. Right. And as a friend of mine says, yet just stands for you're eligible too. So <laughs> it was all on its way. And the reality is, is that um, I went to go see a therapist in hopes of finding out how to get my wife to be less upset with my addiction mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. have her go along with it more because mm-hmm. I couldn't conceive of any other way to go. I had already explained to her that I, I had no ability to stop and it wasn't going to happen and I was terribly sorry, but hoping she was sticking around. And the therapist in the first 10 minutes of the first, you know, first session said, so have you ever heard of sex addiction? I'm like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had not. Uh, but as soon as she said it, I was like, oh man, that is so obviously true. She gave me a book. The book was so hard to read. I couldn't make it through a p- more than a page or two at a time. I had to put it down and my behavior actually got worse because I didn't mm. want to go to meetings still. Right. So my behavior ramped up more, uh, for about three weeks. Um, and I was taking larger risks and then I was like, finally my wife is like, so what's going on? Like, I don't know what's going on there, but you just do not seem like you. And I, I finally just put it all out on the table and, and she said those magic words of maybe it's time for you to go find one of those meetings we keep hearing about. Yeah. So I started making phone calls, found meetings, started showing up. After a little bit of that, it became obvious that that was not my only issue, um, that I was going <laughs> to have to get sober from alcohol, that I was, you know, and then later I realized I was going to have to get, you know, apply some of those same recovery principles to my relationships with family. So I joined one of the family recovery fellowships. And then uh, after several years of someone who, you know, one of my dear mentors and friends in the program kept bringing up like money stuff. And one day I joined one of the money programs and like you know, all this stuff going on. And each program I showed up to, I showed up kind of my tail in between my legs, just a little teeny bit resentful and very scared. And every one of them made my life immeasurably better than it has been. So just like we were saying earlier, not to oversell it or like everything's been perfect and great, but just or that everything keeps consistently getting better. Mm. So that's how I kind of got in recovery. Um, As mentioned earlier, you know, 24 years in the recovery process, a little over 16 of those sober. You can do the math. I had a number of a number of years where. I could go six months, I could go a year. I think my longest was a year and a half, and then I'd be back going like, okay, I'm starting my calendar over again, I got 24 hours, and that just got very disheartening. And when yeah. I was just finally like, I'm there, threw my hands up, you know, called up my my mentor in recovery and just said, tell me what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm done doing it Casey's way, just show me what to do. And, uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to make it into a black and white story. All that time that I was just going to meetings and kind of, you know, half-assing it, things got better. My life was getting better. I, yeah. I stopped experiencing so many consequences. Right. I was getting along better with people. Mm-hmm. Things in my life were looking up. It was just disheartening where I had to keep, you know, falling down and scraping my knees again. So ever since that, that date uh, back in 2006, things have just been getting better at a faster pace. Um, and in that embracing, just doing everything that was suggested and trying to show up in my family as the guy that, you know, my wife thought she married, um, or better, you know, she's, we, we've joked, you know, she's had two husbands in one marriage uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, 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 am kind of proud of that. Um, trying to show up as a better father and mm. I will. I'll take just a moment here and tell you really what is probably my all-time personal favorite recovery story. Uh, 
so like I said, my daughter was two years old when I got in recovery. So obviously she didn't know what I was doing or what these meetings were, or why I went away on Monday nights to, you know, be gone for a couple hours and come back all that. Well, when I've been programmed for about five years, um, I rec- I was like, we were all sitting around eating breakfast together and I went, well, I just realized this is like my five year anniversary that I've, that I've been in program, not five years sober, but five years in program. And my wife, who at that point had started in recovery herself um, three years after me. So she was in program a couple of years, but you know, she's not going to throw like a confetti ticker tape parade for me doing what I should have been doing in the first place. <laughs> she's like, good for you, honey. That's, that's good. I'm really proud of you. But my daughter at seven years old now got up and she ran all the way around the table. She gave me a big hug. I'm getting a little choked up just saying this now. Give me a big hug, and she said, "You are so much of a better dad than you used to be." Oh wow! And I just thought, like, she at that point had not heard the word addiction come out of my mouth. Right. She didn't know why I went to meetings. She didn't know anything I was doing. She just knew I was showing up as a better version of me. That dad did not blow up in anger randomly in the way that I used to. Mm. That I was not as critical as I used to be. That I wasn't on her case. I was working on me. And again, I mean, all those things could still crop up, but it wasn't. It wasn't the way it used to be. And that's what she could tell. Um, And I will say all the way up to even 18. And she's 26 now, but I remember it when she was 18. And I reflect when I was 18, I was barely talking to my family. In fact, by the time I was like 18 and a half, we had almost no dialogue. And by the time I was 22 or so, we had stopped talking for years. So I contrast that with this experience of my 18-year-old daughter giving me a hug and saying, thank you so much for bringing recovery into the family. That's absolutely amazing. And although we do this for ourselves, ultimately, and that's been my experience that I have to do it for me, and I have to truly, genuinely want to continue to get well and be well, the greatest reward is the relationships that we're able to cultivate as a result of doing the work. Absolutely. I mean, my marriage should have been over 10 years in and we just passed 33 years last June. So I've tripled the life expectancy plus of my marriage by showing right. up at meetings. And Absolutely. I'm going to tell you, I, when I run into somebody who's like, oh, I'm here to save my marriage, I can vibe with that. Like, I, I don't sure. I don't say, well, man, you got to do it for you because here's what I know. For me, if I, because I kind of did, I want to save my marriage. I want to, you know, raise my kid. I want to stay out of jail, all these kinds of things that's still a version of doing it for me. That's saying, I want to feel good about myself as a parent. I want to feel good about myself as a husband or spouse. I want to feel good about myself as a member of society. I I want to see myself as a decent human being. That's still a version. It's like, maybe it's, I'm not conceptualizing it as doing it for me, but I'm still kind of doing it for me. And I found that no matter what somebody's motivation is, and I want to put that out there for anybody listening, no matter what your motivation is showing up, as long as you're showing up, all the other stuff is going to shake out. And maybe over time, I will. I'll, I came around from thinking, okay, I'm doing this to save this or avoid that and turn more into, no, this is worth doing for its own sake. It really Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's been my experience. My third time in recovery, which is the last time, now seven plus years ago, right on. I went to treatment because I didn't want to get divorced again. That's why I went. I wanted no part of getting divorced again. And the only way that I stood a chance of not getting divorced again was going to treatment. 
so I did. Ultimately, though, in that treatment counselor's office during the intake, I ended up surrendering completely for the first time in my life and got completely honest. I wasn't expecting to do that. I didn't come in planning to do that. But that's what happened. And so to your point, I wouldn't have gone to treatment if my now ex-wife, and that's also instructive, although I was able to surrender and get honest, truly honest, for the first time in my life about the full scope and nature of all of my addictions. And that launched me into the most meaningful and enduring recovery I've ever experienced in my life. Marriage didn't survive it. And it's the best thing that could have happened to both of us. I am now engaged to an amazing woman that I would not have met if I wasn't in recovery. And so we don't know what life has in store for us. And I wouldn't have predicted this in a million years that I'd be where I am today. Going into that treatment counselor's office, I was convinced I needed to stay married or my life would be over. And seven plus years later, realizing that the only reason I ended up going to treatment was because that woman said, you better go or it's over. And it was over anyway, but she did me one of the biggest favors in my entire life by providing me that motivation to go in to treatment and stayed legally married to me long enough to get me through six plus months of treatment, which, you know, she hated, she literally hated my guts, Casey, but she was willing to stay legally married long enough to allow me to be in treatment long enough in order to be able to launch my recovery. I'll be forever grateful for that. All that to say that however we get in, all that matters is that we get in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I can relate to the recovery whack-a-mole, man. You talk about this, you know, I can put it down for a while and life gets better for sure because... You know, I'm doing some positive things. I'm not maybe doing it all the way. And I've got some reservations and I'm kind of one foot in, one foot out. And I'm maybe on the edge here. I'm not totally embracing this thing, right? I'm going to, you know, not stick around at the end of the recovery meeting. I'm going to go right to my car right afterwards. And, and I'm sort of eating around the edges. But there's some benefit. And that was me. My first time when I was in treatment and 12-step meetings in my teens because my parents forced me to go, my life got better, right? I wasn't ready to get sober. Then, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't the right time for me. I had just found that thing. But, and then a second time due to a nudge from the judge, mm-hmm. I went back and again, I was working wall steps. I was staying sober on, fellowship and wall steps but my life got better and i knew where to go when i really 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 was ready 
And that's the benefit there because there was people in there that ultimately had what I wanted. And even in those previous instances where you know, half of me was like, you all need this. I don't, but you all do. <laughs> and the other half of me was jealous and envious that you all were able to get this thing. And somehow I wasn't able to get it at that moment. Like I wanted to, like half of me really wanted to, you know, I wanted that serenity. I wanted that peace. I wanted the things that the quote unquote winners had, but half of me was like, I don't need it. And sort of one foot in one foot out. But again, when I was truly, truly ready, I knew exactly where to go. And it felt like coming home. And so coming back into the 12 step program after that treatment counselor experience, it 100% felt like coming home. That is really beautiful. And you know, what you said illustrates something that I think is so important that, you know, in your story in my story of like, you know, I'm showing up and I'm not going to do all the things. I don't want to do spiritual parts. I was going <laughs> right. to skip. I was going to skip everything that said or implied spirituality, God, or anything like that. I was going to skip all that part of, of the recovery, the you know, fellowship program that was offered to me. Um, but showing up still helped. It didn't do everything it, was, it could do, but it helped. And so yeah. when I have family members coming in, you know, they'll be like, well, I mean, my loved one's a treatment, but I don't think they're really doing it for themselves. I can't tell if they're serious. And I'm like, it's okay. You know, again, research, research geek over here, you know, research shows that like 90 to 95% of people that go to treatment, their life gets better. Even if they don't stay continuously sober afterwards, you'll see if they're still drinking, they drink less per episode. They have fewer episodes, fewer arrests, fewer consequences. But here's the really big one. They will seek help faster next time. That may have taken 20 years to go to, to treatment the first time or to show up to a meeting somewhere the first time. You know, and then maybe it'll take them six months the second time. And then pretty soon you get people where they got the, yeah, they're, they're like struggling for like a week and a half. And they're like, I need to go get help. I know, I know. And it's like, oh, thank God. That's what we needed to have happen. We needed to have that happen where it's like, as soon as you recognize trouble, you can go help. It's like we're shortening our reaction time. So even if you got nothing else, but I was, I was listening to, uh, you know, I was on a, an online meeting this morning and listening to someone talk about like, yeah, I went to treatment and, you know, they talked about going to meetings. They took us to meetings. And I was kind of rolling my eyes, whatever you crazy people and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but then they said after they got out of treatment, you know, whatever, a few months later and their life is spiraling again, they said, I didn't need to go back to treatment that time because I had been paying attention. I did actually listen. So I knew what I needed to do. So I got to the meetings and I got serious and I did the things that I've been sober ever since. And, and then, you know, hearing people talk about that kind of thing. And then that turns out to have been 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah right like they yeah. got 30 years sober now it's like just because you're showing up or your loved one's showing up and they don't seem as serious as you wish they were doesn't mean they're not getting something and it doesn't mean they're not going to benefit so that's where i'm back to like whatever your motivation whatever your level of motivation just show up I love it's that. not gonna hurt you no one's gonna I bite you're not gonna catch on fire i love um, that and you may pick up on something that's going to be helpful for you and i love the message casey that by virtue of being a part of a recovery fellowship and a recovery program, we're going to receive benefit. And statistically, and backed by research, that's fact. And yeah. we're, we're quicker to seek help the next time. We materially benefit 
from that experience. And so it's not black and white. It's not sober forever and it's all sunshine and rainbows and all the prizes or misery, suffering, and death. There's that space in between and we can go to these recovery meetings and maybe at the beginning we're not going to fully commit all of ourselves to it but we're going to work our way into adding these things into our lives and as our personal growth begins to evolve we reach new levels that's certainly been my experience in terms of my recovery process I keep finding things that I need to continue to work on and continue to grow and continue to evolve in my recovery. And that'll be happening until the day I die. I'm not going to be done with this thing. I'm going to continue to be working and evolving and growing at this thing. And it's a practice and it's a process. And you talk about the higher power thing. Like, I wanted no part of a higher power. None. Zero. Like, the you people can have that. That's fine. I want no part of it. My mom died when I was 12 of cancer. I hated God. I hated God. I wanted no part of it. But it was really instructive for me in the beginning. I listened to a lot of Joe and Charlie, and I'm a true believer that it took Bill and Bob to write the big book and Joe and Charlie to describe it and explain it. And Joe and Charlie would always say, run the experiment. Don't worry about the process. Don't judge the process. Just run the experiment and judge the results. And I had that openness. I had that willingness. And I had that honesty in order to be able to just work the steps in order to the best of my ability with a sponsor. And I was willing to figure out what that would be like at the end. And I just, you know, suspended disbelief long enough to earnestly work these things. And my life got a lot better. And that was the evidence that I needed. It got like a lot, but like a lot better, crazy better. I had the same boss, but I loved my job. I had the same kids, but I had a completely different relationship with them. You know, I drove the same roads, but the drivers didn't, aggravate me the same outside my life was the same but the way i was experiencing my life was fundamentally different and the change was primarily a relationship with a higher power and i was praying to a god that i did not have a concept of and that i had no understanding of i wiped the slate clean and started praying to legitimately nothing like I didn't know what I was praying to but I called it God because I didn't have a better word for it and just praying to something that I had no concept of but I meant it and I asked for help in the morning and I thanked this unknown entity at night my life got better and I was a person that felt like if I could make it up from a higher power perspective it wasn't big enough for me and you know like i just felt like if i can invent it how is it going to save me that doesn't make any sense and that informed my experience and in, in praying to this thing that i didn't understand 
dramatically changed how I experienced life and changed what I was putting out into the world. And because what I was putting out into the world was fundamentally different, what I was getting back was fundamentally different. And it created this positive feedback loop. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And you're hitting on a lot of themes that very much resonate for me. I already mentioned similar sort of thing. Came into a recovery program with no intention to connect with spirituality. In fact, I was going to try and skip everything that mentioned God or had the spirituality, which left me with about half program. Right. Um, <laughs> half program wasn't enough for me, luckily, because otherwise I, I would not have felt so motivated and inspired to explore spirituality. Um, and, uh, well, you know, as being an author, that's, that's actually the book that I just put out is called spirituality for people who hate spirituality. And I came up with the title because that's where I started out. I, I want, you know, I didn't just dislike it. I actively wanted nothing to do with it. And yet at one point I finally had to say, okay, doing it with this without spirituality is not getting me what I want. And maybe I'm the one being closed minded and I need to look at this. So uh, in the book, I actually ex uh, explain how to take the scientific method and treat prayer as a science experiment and say, you'll go through every step of the scientific method and say, okay, I'm going to apply this to prayer and say, even if I am certain I'm praying to nothing, will the act of prayer still benefit me? And the answer turns out to be yes. You know, the, this, the scientifically proven benefits of prayer are pretty widespread. You know, prayer improves physical health, mental health, you know, our emotional well-being. Even if I'm never praying for anything on the outside of, of, of me to get changed. And I, I like to say, you know, I don't need a higher power that gets me a better parking spot. I need a higher <laughs> power that shows me how to deal with the parking spot that I get. Yeah. Um, because what I really wanted all along, what I thought my addiction was going to bring me, what I thought money, sex, food, fame, whatever, possessions were going to bring me. Um, was a peace of mind. And needless to say, none of them ever did in any lasting way. But I found that engaging in prayer, meditation, trying to connect, even with, with a higher power that I could not define, didn't define, it turns out don't need to define. Now I will say, and I talk about this in the book, but it's, it's, it's not an exercise that I made up, it's just something I'm passing along, is sitting down and writing down a list of what I want in a higher power. Like what qualities do I want? And I started writing a list and I thought to myself, similar to what you said, hey, you know, I'm just making this up. What, you know, how is this going to help me? And yet directing my prayer outward to saying, okay, I'm only praying to whatever's out there possibly that could exist that would be loving, that would be kind, that a good sense of humor, be uh, forgiving and patient, be able to help me and come up with better ideas than I do. I think that was my starting list. And I, I've grown it since as I think of something else I need on the list, I add it. But I would literally say, okay, I'm just praying to whatever's got those qualities. Everybody else can keep moving. I'm not talking to you. I'm just talking to whatever is kind and loving and can help me and, you know, and all of that. And as foolish as I thought I, I was being, I also thought back to a buddy of mine in meetings that I used to go to when I lived in a different state. And he would say, it's the weirdest thing. I was willing to fall to my knees and throw up in front of my family. But I was scared to get on my knees and pray in front of anybody. I would humiliate myself in public, but I was afraid to be spiritual in public. And so that really struck me. This like, okay, what am I so afraid of? Am I afraid of being foolish? I've been foolish before. I've been foolish lots of times in the name of my disease. 
can I be foolish in the name of my recovery? If I'm just being foolish with the spirituality, then okay, let's be foolish because avoiding this hasn't done it for me. Let's try it out. And so um, when I sat down and kind of thought like, you know, okay, I wrote this first book talking about family recovery and what to expect out of treatment and communication styles and how to be happy and, you know, brain research around, uh, around addiction, stuff like that. Like what's left to write about? This is what really struck me is to be able to write about spirituality. And of course, and this is again, for me is my higher power at work. I sat down to write about the things that I thought I already knew, but of course it led me to all kinds of research. And so I'd like learn something new, go like, wow, I need to know more about that. Or I'd be looking up a study on one thing and then I'd see the title of a related study. Oh, I need to know about that. And so um, all the stuff in the book is backed up by research study after research study after research study saying like, hey, you know what? Some people in the Middle East discovered this. So we can say that, you know, here are some of the benefits, whether you are praying five times a day in the style of Islam or you are praying in a Buddhist style, or you're praying in a fundamentalist Christian style, or you're praying in, and this is the largest growing category I found out, spiritual but not religious, or they say SBNR. So spiritual but not religious um, is the fastest growing category in sort of the Western civilized world. It's arguably not the fastest growing category overall by population, but that has apparently more to do with like birth rates among highly religious people than it does about people converting to one style or another. So whether you're spiritual but, but not religious, whether you subscribe to a given faith, um, whether you don't put, you know, pin in anything, whether you say I'm agnostic, as in I don't know the answer, neither do you, or you're diehard atheist saying, you know, there is no deity. Um, no matter where you are with that, the act of prayer can still help you. And you might think, well, an atheist would never pray, but that turns out not to be true. I know a lot of atheists who pray. I'm married to, uh, I mean, I dedicated the book to my wife, Kira, says to Kira, the most spiritual atheist I know. Um, and it's true. You know, she prays daily and it works for her, even though she is certain that there is no deity, which is mm -hmm. really all that atheism comes down to. Mm -hmm. um, so I discovered in this and or at times discovered and at times reaffirmed just these ideas that whoever you are, whatever you believe or don't believe, whatever you're comfortable with or not, the benefits of spirituality are available to you. And one of the huge benefits, and a lot of those benefits would apply to anyone on earth, but huge benefits for people trying to get sober. And we can really show again that people who engage in spirituality do so much better than people who don't. I love the title. Thank you. Spirituality for people who hate spirituality, because I think it does speak to a large segment of folks who are contemplating or new in recovery certainly i was in that camp you were in that camp not only did i have a giant resentment against god but i also threw religion organized religion into that bucket as well because i had a whole host of reasons that organized religion was the worst and to your point and really the core message of your book is that if you run the experiment like I did, you will find that there is a practical benefit to the practice 
of prayer to the practice of meditation, which I do both. And I never thought in a million years, Casey, that I would be a prayer and a meditator on a daily basis. If somebody told me that eight years ago, I would have laughed in their face. Yet today, it is an essential part of my daily recovery routine. And I've found, I've discovered that I'm a spiritual seeker. And that's a big part of my life. And I really enjoy learning new things through my own spiritual practices and through the practices of others. And I learn about the practices of others through a variety of methods, often books, of folks just like you who are writing about spirituality and talking about their own spiritual journeys, but also talking about really relevant facts and empirical research around the practical benefit of spiritual practices. Yeah, and and in my book, podcast, all that stuff, and just in my personal day-to-day message of recovery, I'm not here to chase people around and say, you should be spiritual and you have to be spiritual yeah. and you know, all this kind of <laughs> stuff. I'm just here for the person who says, I want those benefits, but I don't think I can get them. Or somebody told me I need to be spiritual and maybe they're right, like, but I can't get myself to believe. I want to believe, but I can't. You know, I want those benefits, but they're out of my reach. I'm somebody who, you know, I've tried and it didn't work. I really want to be there for that person because mm-hmm. I've been all of those things and be able to say, well, as, as the saying goes, you know, we're best equipped to serve the person we used to be. Yeah. So I can look and say, I've been there. Here's how we got from point A to point B. Those benefits are available to you. From wanting to want to, to wanting to, to actually then starting to implement some of these practices that could have a very tangible benefit in our daily lives and our recovery. Yeah, and it it was important to me to write not just philosophically about spirituality, because there are plenty of people who've done that, and I'm sure much better than me, (laughs) but also to just say on a practical level, here's how you can build your own spiritual program, here's some different ways to pray, here's some meditations you can try, here's some other resources, and that's why I wanted to pack it with a lot of resources and references to say, like, you know, you don't have to take work, my word for it, and I hope that you your reading and searching around spirituality doesn't begin or end with just this book. Yeah. Like, here's a lot of directions you can go in, because there's a lot of great information out there on how to make spirituality part of your life, no matter where you're, where you're starting from. It doesn't matter. I love that. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my spiritual journey thus far is that if I keep it simple, yet understand that the greatest thing I can bring to my practice is not a really elaborate routine, but mindfulness 
an intentionality in it, like really, really being in it as much as I can. And that to me then provides the biggest reward in that spiritual practice, not just checking boxes that I did, you know, a 30 minute meditation, but I wasn't in it. Or I did this elaborate prayer routine, but I wasn't in it because I'm perfectly capable of that. I'm perfectly capable of building out an extremely elaborate routine that I'm not checked in on. And so one of the biggest lessons I've learned personally in my own practice is less is more and really focusing in on the essentials that I can really be in as much as possible. Absolutely. And yeah, that, that practice of mindfulness, which you know comes originally out of Buddhism, is just that idea of twofold. And you know, one is being really present. Um, which is really important. And the second part is being accepting of whatever I find. Yeah. And between those two things, we can achieve like a really solid peace of mind. Because usually, if I'm here in the moment, I'm outside of anxiety, because anxiety is about what's going to happen in the future. I'm letting go of guilt and shame, because that's about what happened in the past. I'm just right here right now. But if I can be accepting of whatever I find, including what I find within myself, then I have a real shot at feeling that sense of peace that I thought was going to come from the outside and in fact can come from the inside. And uh, I, I suspect I'm not alone in thinking that like, you know, that sense of peace is what I thought addiction was going to bring me. It was going to make me okay. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned Joe and Charlie and I remember, you know, at one point they said, um, you know, the, that alcohol made all the promises come true temporarily. Indeed. Know, I, I lost, indeed. lost my fear of people in economic insecurity. Yes, Maybe indeed. not a good idea at the time. That's what happened. <laughs> Um, so I found that I can have those things on a long-term basis when I find that, that spirituality and that acceptance and that allow that sense of peace. And um, there's no greater benefit. Couldn't have said it better myself that what I sought in drugs, alcohol, and addictive behaviors and received temporarily, although there was definitely a diminishing return on that the longer I was active in my addiction and alcoholism mm -hmm. in terms of that nirvana-type experience that I was always searching for to get out of myself and to hit that proverbial eject button on the inner turmoil and chaos and fear that was constantly inside of me the there was a law of diminishing returns on that for sure i am able to access that in such a more genuine less euphoric mm -hmm. and sustainable way through recovery and those practices like meditation, like prayer, like physical activity, like self-care, like journaling. Those are all practices that I do on a daily basis that afford me serenity and peace of mind 
minus the euphoria. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's one of the things that I touch touch on in my writing uh, that I learned through uh, the studies on positive psychology is the the type of happiness that many of us chase in addiction is one type of happiness that goes up really quickly and then comes down really quickly. But that's only one type of happiness. There's also like a second type of happiness. And of course, like all things categorical, it's not that everything fits neatly in a box, but sort of this second style of happiness has to do with things where we get into a sense of flow, into a sense of like being in the zone. So we might associate that with, you know, sports, um, could be self-exploration, could be reading, could be gardening, could be music, things like that. But there's a third type. And this is the type that I really see so much from recovery which is like a growth type of happiness, um, the type where it infuses our life with a sense of meaning and purpose, which some researchers and theorists would say is the most important aspect of, of happiness is finding a sense of meaning. And that's often found through activities where we feel like not are we challenged and we're learning, like say playing piano, but we're challenged to grow on a deep personal level, like when we reach out to somebody else. So being of service and spirituality are two of the biggest ways that we find that type of happiness that isn't a quick up and a quick down. It isn't even like the slower and more gradual type that we find in the sense of flow, but it's a really deep type that slowly but surely raises our happiness baseline. So we just feel better about ourselves as human beings. We feel better about our lives on the day to day so even when something really great happens, we go up and down or something negative happens, we go down and the back up. The baseline that we're going to becomes a higher, higher baseline where it's just our overall sense of happiness in the world is better rather than what I experienced for most of my life, which is I feel kind of crappy and then I, I get sort of high to get out of that. But I'm, I know I'm going back down to it. Um, with like a growth type of happiness and that nourishing, deep, meaningful type of happiness, then I'm no longer like kind of going home, as it were, to a lousy state of mind. I get to come back to a resting point that's actually really nourishing and fulfilling. And uh, that to me is worth doing. I mean, if, if someone had told me, hey, you can skip the drugs and the behaviors and the, all that constant seeking and get this instead, if I had known that, I like to think I would have gone for it. I probably originally wouldn't have believed it was possible right. for me. But if, if, if I could have known that's what I was going for, I would have skipped all that other stuff and just started going for this. Absolutely. I had to be ready, though, and I had to be at a place where I was really willing to surrender the idea that I could do this, that I could manage it, that I could hide it, that I could keep this thing in my life and also be happy and also keep all the things that I wanted to keep in my life, primarily relationships. I had to let go of all that, that I could do it, that I could manage it. And I had to surrender the fact that I didn't have any answers. I was out of answers and then I needed help. And then seeing people in meetings that thought like I thought, felt like I felt, did what I did and they got better. And I started doing what they did. And my life started getting better. Absolutely. And it's it's such an important way in which human beings learn and grow is from the example of each other. And uh, you may know this one already. Some of your listeners may be familiar, some may not. But uh, human beings, and we don't know that it's absolutely unique, but it's so important for human beings. We have what's called mirror neurons, like looking in a mirror. And those are the things that enable us to see someone else do something and then effectively imitate them. Mm-hmm. 
And we do it from earliest, like when we're little infants and, you know, the stereotype would be like, we look up, you know, mother and child, they're using those neurons primarily, like the mother will make a facial expression and the child will mirror it. Now, how could they possibly know that, right? How could they know like, oh, wait, she's doing this thing, I can do it, and then reflexively form our face into the same facial expression, and yet we have that ability to look at someone where we don't have to learn all our lessons through hard personal experience. Many of us in early recovery, that's all there is. Like I didn't, right? <laughs> no. I didn't think I was like anyone. No one was like me. No one knew who I felt. 100%. So I had to do it all on my own. But over time, I could rely on those mirror neurons and look at other people in recovery and say, wait, I'm watching him do this thing and his life gets better. I can do that. Maybe my life will get better. And then I start to feel more and more connected. And that is my basic definition of spirituality is a sense of connection. And I'll say a sense of connection to something greater than myself. And maybe initially that's just the group guys in recovery. You know, the group guys and gals and say, guys, I'm, I grew up in the West Coast. So it's a, you know, gender non-specific term, but just the group of people in recovery I could yeah. look at and say, they're doing better than me. That is possible for me. Maybe if I do what they did, things will get better. And that's, that is just relying on a basic human strength that's built into us neurologically. And to your point, that connection is really the foundation and the essence of that third category of happiness that you talked about is that connection yeah. to something greater than ourselves and other people. And we're biologically and evolutionarily programmed to need to be connected to other people. Back in the hunter-gatherer days... If we were not a part of the group, there was a significant chance we were going to freaking die for a whole variety of reasons. The group kept us alive. There were certain people that knew how to start the fire and keep the fire. There were certain people that knew how to hunt and gather, cook, protect. When most were sleeping, some had to be up to protect the group. So they all worked together in order to keep each other alive. They told stories to pass information along. So that's very much baked into who we are. We need to connect and we need to be connected. And when you describe that third level of happiness, really raising the happiness baseline, I love that because the inverse is true. In my active addiction and alcoholism, my baseline kept getting lower. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And even though I was experiencing those, still those temporary up and down, over the long term, my baseline was getting a lot lower and a lot lower as time went on. And then getting into recovery, again, less of those extreme ups and downs, right? Because I'm not actively manufacturing them with chemicals and substances and behaviors, but they still exist as a part of organic life. But the baseline is going up and up. And there's definitely still downs because life can get lifey. But the growth and the evolution is one that's trending up. Absolutely. And, you know, in terms of that sense of connection, um, I'm going to say one human being on their own is about as much good as one ant on their own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're just not going to get that much done, but we're right. in a group and we can accomplish practically anything. And Amazing that's why thing. I think spirituality is so 
built into the human brain because spirituality in my definition is is really just that sense of connection it's that sense that i am not alone and when we feel like we're not alone we feel connected then we can thrive and if we feel isolated we're going to suffer without question yes without question and as one person said that his alcoholism wants to get him alone so it can kill him Mm -hmm. yeah so I need to stay connected. Casey, tell me a little bit more about the book you wrote before spirituality for people who hate spirituality, because that book focused on the family side. And I don't want to neglect spending some time on that. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. So the first book was called Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. And my intention was, was exactly that. In fact, my original cover design in my head was going to look like an army field manual, just sort of like, here's what you do. Um, but it's really based on family work that I've been doing for the better part of 10 years now. I think I'm coming up on like little, yeah, I think I'm coming up on about nine years or so of working with family workshops, specifically like guiding families who are showing up because they have loved one at treatment, just going like, what are we supposed to be doing now? And I just looked to all the subjects that people would ask about. Um, so starting with helping families get some understanding of addiction in the brain, and then looking at like what to expect in the treatment process, should your loved one go to treatment, what are recovery meetings, what happens at them. So a lot of like practical hands-on knowledge, but also getting into communication styles, getting into enabling versus helping, uh, getting into you know what is rescuing, why do people talk about these things? How do people change? Like what do the stages of change look like for people? What to expect after treatment? What are all these acronyms? Like my, my loved one's in IOP or PHP or <laughs> sober living. Like what does that even mean? Um, you know, where does a doctor come into this? If it's supposed to be a medical condition, all this kind of stuff. So I went into trying to answer a lot of those questions and then also give people again, practical hands-on ideas of how can you work on your communication? How can you work on your happiness? And again, based on research and positive psychology, how can you build happiness even if your loved one is still struggling? Because a lot of family members tell themselves, well, I can't be happy unless my loved one's doing okay, which is about as effective as you know, the loved one saying, well, I can't get sober unless you do blank. Right. Well, that's setting everybody up. So it was originally written really with that in mind for the family members. Um, although I've been very grateful and blessed that a lot of people in recovery themselves have said, Hey, that book helped me a lot. And yeah. I, learned, I learned a lot from, it. I learned how to talk to my family um, rather than just saying, Oh, I want them to read this book so they understand me. Cause that's not really what it's for. It's like, I want everyone to read the book so that they can function better is really what yeah. I'm hoping for. I love that. And often folks who find themselves in the rooms of recovery as a person that is dealing with a substance use disorder or addiction or alcoholism or some sort of process or behavior addiction come from families where that was very much at play in the family of origin. So understanding how that affected us as we grew up and still affects us as adults can be extremely helpful. Yes. Yeah, amazing how many things will pop up 
and we don't even realize that these are family patterns that started around addiction. We think, oh, that's how we are, or that's how I am, or I've just always wanted to do blank. And I always right. saw it that way when in reality, this is something that was passed down to us. So such an opportunity, my hope to like kind of intervene on that and give people a fighting chance to, to change those patterns, or at least to recognize them to say like, hey, once again, I'm not alone. It's not just me. There's lots of people that have been through this. And most importantly, that message of hope, that's the title, Realistic Hope, to be able to say, like, there is hope around all these things. Because I, I would hate to be the guy that writes a book that says you're doomed. Right. Uh, <laughs> here's all this information. By the way, you're hosed. It, it's always got to be oriented towards here's what you can do about it. And here's some practical suggestions, because that's at the end of the day what people want to know. And a lot of people are looking for like a checklist of always do this, never do that. And that doesn't really exist. But we can say the number one thing you can do to help the people around you, whether you're one with the addiction or not, the number one thing you can do to help the people around you is work on your own recovery and work on your own issues. Everybody's life will benefit as a result of that. And I love that message that you can get well regardless of whether anybody else around you gets well. And that's true whether you're the person with it an addiction or whether you're the family member of somebody with addiction, you can get well regardless of whether they get well or not. And you can continue to work on things that are going to make a profound difference in how you experience life, no matter what anybody else does. And it's an inside job in terms of the things that we need to do in order to get well from uh, both sides. But if you could tell me, Casey, in your experience, maybe some of the most impactful things that folks do on the family side in order to start on their path of recovery. I'd say probably the most impactful thing that I see for people is to join a recovery fel family fellowship. So um, you know, every time I do a family workshop, I just download in the chat because you know we have a lot of people coming on on online platforms now as well as in person. So whether I'm handing it out, putting it in the chat, whatever, is just saying like, okay, uh, Al-Anon is the oldest and biggest of them all. That's kind of the grandmother of all of them. Um, there's others that have sprung out from that. You know, there's Alateen for the teen members. Um, as those early teen members grew up, what I understand is they're the ones who started Adult Children of Alcoholics. Uh, there's Codependents Anonymous, there's Families Anonymous. And then if you don't really want to go a 12-step route, there's Smart Recovery Family and Friends. Mm -hmm. Takes a very scientific approach. But what we found um, is that the people who sort of mix and match or find the ones that you know, try some different things out, find what, find what resonates for you. They're not exclusive to each other. Like I know people that go to Al-Anon and Coda, that Codependents right. Anonymous. Or they're going to uh, Families Anonymous and they're going to Smart Recovery Family and Friends. You know, it's not like they're little walled off cities where you have to pick a team and, you know, now you're at war with everyone else. It's like pick all the tools you can up. So that's probably the most impactful thing that I see is family members going to recovery family fellowships, getting involved, doing some of the process. Because Al-Anon, I like to joke, but it might actually be true, puts out more literature than all the other 12-step programs combined. Right. <laughs> so many books, pamphlets, workbooks. They've got... They're the only fellowship I know that's got like three daily readers, and I think they're working on a fourth one. Um, tons of resources. Smart Recovery Family and Friends has a whole workbook. 
which you're going to find a lot of the same messages between them. Mm -hmm. They're going to point in the same directions, but just taking you through exercises that you can do on your own and with the group. Um, but the things that we find uh, scientifically that make recovery fellowships the most effective are committing to it and really doing what, they, you know, what they're trying to do, getting the phone numbers of other people so there's more connection, yeah. um, volunteering to help at the meetings, yeah. and then connection. when the time comes, lead, leading a meeting. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And I say all the time, I have an and program. I don't have an either or program. So my program is 12 step centered and CBT mm -hmm. and therapy was transformational for me. EMDR for sure. I'm a huge advocate of smart recovery. A huge benefit. It's an and program. So be open and willing to explore anything that might be beneficial and expose yourself to it, whether you are on the family side or whether you are the f person that has an addiction that you're wanting to begin to address. Be quick to seek out help across a wide spectrum of avenues, a wide spectrum of peer support fellowships. If therapy or counseling could be useful, recovery coaching, if that could be useful, literature from all of these programs or not, uh, from a recovery standpoint, make it an and program and it will benefit you tremendously. Absolutely. And, uh, and I'll put in a, a brief shameless plug. I, I work at a treatment center I'm really grateful to work at called Windmill Wellness Ranch in Texas. And one of the reasons I work there is because we do 12-step recovery. We also do smart recovery. And it's one of the few places I know that does like, hey, you can come in, you can do either, you can or, or you can do both. And we recommend people do both because research shows, and again, research geek, Research shows that either one of the programs works equally effective if you pour yourself into it, but they work even better if you combine them. I love and that. And so being able to say to anybody, hey, you know, you need more of this and less of that, dial it in, make it your program, and you too can recover. I love that. I absolutely love that, Casey. We have some closing questions if you're ready. Fire away. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? Oh, man. So I'm going to say that the first hour or so of pretty much every day, um, I roll out of bed and I pray. Yeah. I get up and I do um, a couple of daily readers that I find inspirational. Um, then I sit down with my journal. I do what's called two-way prayer. If you're not familiar with that, it's well worth checking out. Um, I also, shameless plug, put it in my book. Um, and then I'll often hit a meeting, either online or by phone. I'll also do some yoga and a little bit of light exercise. And so... In that first hour or so of my day, I've taken care of spirit, uh, mind, and body using that order. And then I try and eat a healthy breakfast and get ready for my day. But that's probably the biggest piece. I get to some kind of recovery meeting pretty much every day. Um, I uh, talk to somebody in recovery outside of those meetings pretty much every day. Um, and... Uh, then, you know, then sort of like the stuff in between just throughout my day, I try and keep my antenna up, listening for my higher power and asking for direction 
on what to do next and find that that direction to whether it's through my own intuition or something I see, read, or hear. Um, those are those are the main things that I do in my recovery, and I find the more of that that I do as a friend of mine who's in recovery, who's also a medical doctor, says it's it's dose specific. The more you the more you do it, the better it works. You stop doing it, it stops working for you. So. I've, I do a lot more now rather than less. You know, I used to think, man, I have to work harder at the beginning of my recovery, but I'll say I, I work harder on it now just because mm. I really enjoy the benefits. That's tremendous. I love the two-way prayer. So we will put some information on that in the show notes. So check that out right now. All of the other great information will be in there as well. So please check that out as well. Casey, what book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery? Um, I'm going to have to say the biggest impact would be the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or the basic text. The official title, for those that don't know, is just Alcoholics Anonymous. The, the group was named for the book, not the other way around. Um, so that's probably been the one that's had the most impact, both directly through me reading it, also through how much it sort of rippled out and created a lot of the recovery landscape that we now know. So even if I had never picked it up or read a word of it, it would still have had a profound impact on my recovery just through how influential a book it's been. I couldn't agree more. Both books are really hallmark books in the recovery literature or quit lit sphere. Mm. And certainly the big book or, as you said, Alcoholics Anonymous was instrumental for me in my own recovery. And again, if you're a person that likes to listen to it rather than read it, I'll always plug Joe and Charlie because they do a marvelous job explaining uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Casey, what is the best piece of advice you've received in recovery thus far? Uh, very first meeting that I went to, somebody said, keep coming back. It gets better. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's funny because I would hear that and I, the first thought, my first two attempts in recovery were, was, was bullshit. Right. You know, like, mm -hmm. but for me, and I, and I thought maybe for you, but maybe not for me, right? You know, and I had that persistent thought that, yeah, certainly you could get better, but, you know, you're not me. You know, if you knew what it was like to be me, you knew, then you would understand, right? Why I can't get better, why I can't get this, why, what, you know, and, and, and but, but they kept saying it over and over and over again. And that's something that definitely stuck with me that, keep coming back and they meant it like they really meant it you could see it in their eyes the way they looked at you that they meant it they wanted you to come back and that it did get better for them and i believed that even when i didn't believe it was possible for myself early early on in my first couple attempts i believed it got better for them right and that was really important what is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery oh boy um <laughs> which one should i pick uh you know i'm gonna say the i'm gonna go with the, from this direction 
the biggest challenge that I had in recovery was my own fear. Mm. Was my fear that uh, that it wasn't going to work for me, that I was somehow doomed. Um, my fear that if I went along with what everyone else said, that I wouldn't be myself anymore, and I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to be okay. And my basic fear that I could not be okay sober. I was, I was terrified that I could not, not just like live happy, but that I couldn't be okay sober. And luckily, none of those tr fears turned out to be true, obviously, because mm -hmm. here I am today. But I would say that that was really the biggest challenge ahead of me in recovery. Really hit a fundamental fear that I think many of us have. I certainly had as well, because my experience bore that out prior to really working and earnestly working a program of recovery to the best of my ability and really getting into a fellowship of recovery was that sobriety was worse than active addiction because the times I had quit, it was without a solution. Casey, what is your greatest success in recovery? Well, outside of the basic of like staying in recovery, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say my greatest success is being able to show up uh, for my daughter, who's mm. now 26. Mm. Um, for for 24 out of her 26 years, I've been in recovery and being able to show up for her, but also in that way to show up for myself to essentially keep some of the promises I had originally made to myself of what a great dad I was going to be and then wasn't for the first two years. And I want, I want the world's worst dad for the first two years but I certainly was not winning any prizes for the world's best dad either. Mm. So I will say that, that I'm going to count that one as my greatest success in recovery. That's absolutely tremendous. The next one's a doozy, and then we end with a fun one. Okay. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? Oh. Um. Hmm. I'll be honest with you. I got nothing on that one. I can't think of any. I, I have some things that I thought would be unforgivable and I thought I could never achieve forgiveness, but I'll say to my overall program of recovery, including recovery fellowships and the work put form, forth, plus therapy, plus learning to help others, both as a guy in recovery and as a therapist. I honestly can't point to anything in my life at this point and say I've not forgiven myself. And there's certainly nothing that I could point to from anyone else say I can't forgive that. And I believe that because that's possible for us if we do the work. And that's been borne out in my experience. It was a long process. There was a lot of things that I had to work on. Sometimes stuff does crop back up. But because of my recovery program and my daily recovery practices, I actively shed that stuff. And I'm capable of picking some stuff up along the way, but I actively on a daily basis have a practice of shedding those resentments against myself and other people. And it's becoming baked in, man. And that's it's a pretty amazing process. That's amazing. Indeed. Yeah. Here's the fun one. Okay. Casey, what song or songs, plural, symbolize recovery to you? Mm. Well, <laughs> this will sound kind of funny, but it's true. 
Uh, it's actually a song that I wrote with my wife. That's really um, cool. Thank you. That's that's how my wife and I met. We didn't meet as dating partners. We met as songwriting and recording partners um, who then fell in love and got married and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but we wrote a song called Safe Ground. And the the message of the song, the, the chorus of the song says, I'll hold you up till you're on safe ground. And mm. that for me symbolizes recovery is being able to help each other up, but not just hold someone up indefinitely like I'm going to prop them up. But in fact, they're going to get to their own place of safety. And I wasn't thinking about recovery when we wrote that song, but it is something that recovery has proven true in my life for myself and many others, that that we need that love and support, but we won't need it on the same level and intensity forever. At some point, we will be on safe ground, and then we can help the next person. That's absolutely beautiful, brother. Now I got a question for you. Is that song available in some sort of electronic format that it, folks it might is. be able to listen to that. It is. You can find it on many of the usual suspects like Spotify and uh, Apple Music and Amazon Music and all that kind of stuff. Now, here it gets a little funny uh, because my wife and I in 1989 started a band and it's had various incarnations, but the very first name of the band and the very last name of the band that we were operating on when we did most of our recording was called Third Door Down. Now, along the way, a band called Three Doors Down <laughs> yes. came along. And we were like, well, they got way bigger than we ever did. And we're like, you know, for all the band names, I thought no one would ever find or imitate. <laughs> like, what are the odds? And they have an equally improbable story of where it came from. Um, but that being said, you can still find us under Third Door Down. Um, you probably have to put in like Third Door Down and then type in Safe Ground. Or the album that that's on is called Refraction. Um, you can find we've got three albums out, uh, Angels, Refraction, and uh, the last one is called Geography. And if you put those in with Third Door Down, you'll find us. Otherwise, you can spell it any way you want, and you'll still come up with the other band. <laughs> That's life. The good news is, Casey, we have a curated Spotify playlist for this podcast of all the songs that folks cool have recommended as their song that symbolizes recovery so we will be adding that to nice. our curated yep spotify playlist so check the show notes right now and safe ground by third door down will be on that curated spotify playlist along with contact information to reach out to Casey, if you want to get a hold of Casey, we will have handy links to both the books that Casey wrote, which are Realistic Hope and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality. We will have Casey's best piece of recovery advice in the show notes and check the show notes right now for Casey's quit lit recommendations as well, because we'll have links for all of that. So go ahead and check the show notes. A veritable plethora of recovery goodness awaits you as you check the show notes right now. Casey, brother, this was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. 
If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.